Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. You, God. you may be seated. Thanks, Bob, and good morning again. Very glad to have you with us this morning. If you are joining just for Leandro or visiting for any other reason, so grateful that you are with us. We are going to be continuing uh, a series that we began several weeks ago now in the first part of the book of Ephesians that we're calling Grace and Peace, uh, looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to a church that he helped plant some seven years prior in Ephesus, which is today modern Western Turkey. Uh, he wrote that letter to them for several reasons, but one certainly as a reminder to them about the heart of the faith, so that they could press on in that, be caught up in it. And Paul's summary of the heart of the faith comes out very early on in this book. It's even seen in the opening verses in verse 2. Paul says, it's grace and peace that they are to remember. And my prayer is that through this series, we would have more of both in our lives, and that we would show more of both to those around us. Last time, several weeks ago, we looked at Paul beginning to define what grace is all about. What, what is this thing called grace? What does it mean? What does it look like? And he started by helping us see the wonder, almost the craziness of God's grace, that it is completely mismatched to who we are. In fact, it has nothing to do with who we are. It's crazy, it's radical, and it needs to stay that way, or it's not grace anymore. This week, we're going to talk not about the wonder, but about, about the riches, the extravagance, you might say, of this crazy, doesn't make sense kind of grace, so that we might appreciate the fullness and the mystery of what it has for us to take into our lives, to take into the mission field, to take into the everyday mission field of your family, your work, your friends, and your neighbors. I want to look at what Paul has to say today about that through the riches of his grace. 
and the mystery of the riches. So just two things, the riches of his grace and the mystery of the riches. But before we do that, let me invite you to pray with me as we ask God to fill up our hearts. I thank you that you love to talk about your grace. It's not something you hide. It's not something you regret. It is something that you love, as we'll talk about this morning, to show to us. And so I pray that you would show us your grace, that even in a small way that you might reveal it to us, that even like Moses asked to see your glory and you said you could only show him your back, that even if it's just the smallest part of grace that we could handle this morning, would you show us that? Would it light up our hearts and our eyes? Would it light up our conversation? Would it be something that animates us, that gives us new breath and new life as we have a new hope in you? Would you do that this morning? In your name and by your spirit we pray, amen. Well, I typically don't like to use a different translation than the one that we always have in your books in front of you, but this week, this is a, it's a difficult passage to translate. The Greek is tough. If you look at six different translations, they will say the same thing in six different kind of ways. This was the one that I felt was closest to what I could see as some of the, the core things that Paul was getting at there, but, but the ESV will still get at it for us, and we're going to try and reference aspects of the text this morning together. We're going to start by looking at the riches of the grace. There's way more than I could get to, even in these few verses. But Paul lists out a collection of things we have by grace, that when we hear them all together, they amount to something like an overwhelming tidal wave of grace that just crashes over us over and over, almost, almost makes us uncomfortable to listen to it. I don't know if you've had someone give you a compliment. You might feel a little self-conscious. And then they give you another compliment and they're looking you in the eyes and they give you more compliments and you start to feel like, when will this stop? I am so uncomfortable. Please stop drawing attention to me. But, but this is the way God is with us. He loves to give more and more and more almost to the point where you are uncomfortable with it because that is how he sees you. That's how he delights in you now in Jesus. And we get to hear Paul list out this, this massive tidal wave of grace that comes towards us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to touch on a lot of it here, but we won't get to all of it. We're going to start in verse 7. Paul says one of the first things we have in God's grace is redemption. Redemption was a word at that time that particularly meant to be bought back from slavery. It had a particular context, a, a particular meaning that was applied to the life of a slave when you were taken from being enslaved to set free from that slavery. Now, you may not like the idea of Scripture calling you a slave, that you were set free in this way, that that, that was the past that Scripture says that you have, but no slave dislikes the idea of being free. No one who heard this in that ancient time who was a slave would have thought, hmm, pass. No, redemption to those who know they are not free is the sweetest possible thing you could hear. This is freedom to those who are enslaved. We have to hear this like someone who wants to be free, who knows in some way that they're not. If we're honest with ourselves, imagine I could talk to each one of you and there would be something that would come up to your mind where you say, you know, I'm really not free of that keeps following me. It keeps showing up in my work. 
It shows up in my relationships. It shows up when no one else is around. It keeps following me. I'm not free from that. We all face something that we can't quite escape on our own. And Paul, who would have been equally insulted by the idea of being called a slave and somehow needing redemption before he met Jesus, says one of the first things that we have in the grace of Jesus Christ is that though you were a slave, though you may not like hearing it, you were a slave to things that destroyed even your ability to recognize that you weren't free. That Paul was in that place, the one who's writing this very letter saying that you need redemption was in the very place where he did not want to hear and would not have recognized that he was enslaved to things that were slowly crushing his soul. Things that made him numb to his own chains. Paul said it's even for those who are numb to their own chains that redemption has come. By the grace of Jesus Christ, even if you can't feel the weight of the iron on the wrists of your souls anymore, you are a slave no more. One of the riches of his grace, Paul is trying to say, is freedom. Real freedom. Freedom even from chains so comfortable that you don't feel them anymore. Paul says, that's not where things stop with God. The list is going to get longer. He says, we have not just freedom, but we also have forgiveness. Forgiveness also at this time, and even in our time, can mean a cancellation of a debt. But it certainly meant that at that time. Paul's saying, what you owed, you owe no more. I don't know if any of you have had that feeling. Some of us might be deeply in undergrad or in grad school, and you feel like, I look forward to that promised day when my debts are no more and they're paid off, or maybe you've hit that day recently, you paid off something and you feel like, oh, it is so nice to be debt-free. In grace, Paul says, what you owed, you owe no more. What you owed for breaking yourself, for breaking others, for breaking the world around us in sin, breaking the things that God made good and yet, in the crookedness of our hearts, we mistreated. And for all the ways that we mistreated ourselves and others, you don't have to pay for that anymore. That's crazy if we think about it. Debt forgiveness is crazy. We don't even like to talk about that idea nationally in some sense. Debt forgiveness is difficult. It's controversial. But God takes sin seriously enough to call it a debt. He spends pages and pages, centuries and centuries, talking about the problem of sin and how it must be reckoned with. He calls out over and over in Scripture, all this is breaking what I've made. All this is breaking yourself. You're breaking the way I've made it. It is a huge problem and I can't overlook it. And yet for all that, it comes to this point where somehow God says, now I'm willing to forget it. Do you see how, what's that thing in your life that you just can't stop thinking about, that you can't get over, that someone did to you that you think, I will never get over that. I will never forgive that. That thing is just pushing on you and pushing on you. Could you imagine getting to the point where you say, I can now say that that debt is paid and it's satisfied and I don't have to talk about it anymore. God, for all the way that he had to take the things that we have done to break ourselves and others in our world seriously, reaches the point because of Jesus Christ where he says, I can stop talking about that now. 
I hold it against you no more. That when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he meant it really is finished. See how wild the grace of the cross is, that it could make God, for all the time he spends talking about the brokenness of sin, say, it's finished. We don't have to talk about that anymore. You may not like the idea of sin if you're not a Christian or even if you do, but do you see that in Jesus Christ says, God says, the thing I dislike more than you dislike it, that thing, I can now let that go. In Jesus Christ, God forgives what he dislikes more than even you dislike it. That's the riches of his grace. What he hates more than you hate, he forgives. In verse 8, Paul goes on to say that, that redemption and forgiveness are things that God has lavished on us. He's not given them to us in a small, stingy, reserved, begrudging, ah, fine, if I have to, I give it to you. But it says it's lavished on us. Maybe a better way to translate it is he makes it overflow in all wisdom and insight. God doesn't hold these things back. He pours them out until they are uncomfortably high. I don't know if you've seen that commercial from Geico recently of a couple sitting in an Italian restaurant. They say, say when, and the guy's just wheeling out more and more Parmesan cheese until it becomes this mountain. Except the roles are reversed. God's not waiting for you to say when. He is just wheeling out that most good Parmesan cheese of grace. God's not stingy with these things. He's not saying, all you get is just this one little bit of grace. That's it. Make it count. God is lavish, Paul says, with his grace. He is overflowing. And he's not overflowing foolishly. You could feel like if you were the manager of that restaurant, you were thinking, you are making us bankrupt. Stop giving away the cheese. No, it says God does this in wisdom and insight. Not foolishly like he doesn't know how to manage his resources, but with wisdom and insight. That means that it is actually wise, it is actually right, it is actually the best possible thing for God to be lavish, ridiculously generous with his grace towards you. Do you know that? It is wise for him to be gracious like that to keep pouring it on even when we think we have enough. I don't know how you need to hear that this morning. But his grace to you is not foolish. It is not a mistake. It's wise. It's more than you think it should be. More than you think you should have. More than you think you should have with God is the right amount. Grace is the right amount for him. Paul keeps going. Verses 9 and 10, he says, God gives us these things not just in isolation, not as some sort of piece of paper or a substance. He says he gives them to us in Jesus Christ, God the Son. That this overflowing grace is given to us, as we said in the first sermon several weeks back, in a person. The overflow of grace comes to us not in, in a note or something else like that. It's not some sort of amulet sitting in a cave that Indiana Jones finds and brings back. It's not like that. 
The freedom and forgiveness we have are found in someone who is knowable, who is relatable, who gets you. And someone in whom all things, as the verse says, are united in heaven and on earth. He brings all of life to work together for you and you get to know him personally. That's grace, Paul says. But these things come to you not in some sort of absent way, but in in a present, personal way. He redeems, he forgives, he makes all things work together for you personally. That, Paul says, is the overflow of his grace. Paul keeps going. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Would you like me to stop? I can't stop. It's scripture. Verse 11, Paul says, we get this by God's working all things out according to his plan and power. Not by ours. It doesn't say because you saved for it, because you went through the right degree program, because you knew the right people, because you put in the right effort. It says it has nothing to do with you, that God chose you before you could choose. That's what predestined means. It doesn't take anything from you in order to make it happen. And it happens on purpose. That's what the predestining, that's what the choosing means. God isn't like, whoa, you're here. Okay, would you like some grace? I guess we have some extra. No, before all time, it says he chooses you. He does this on purpose. He is lavish, he is overflowing with you when it has nothing to do with what you are like, with what you can offer. He does this overflowing, lavish kind of choosing with you on purpose. The same person that he had to rescue and forgive, he chooses on purpose to be generous like this. That, Paul says, is grace. And verse 12 says, all this happens so that we might exist for the praise of his glory. I don't know if you have people in your, your life and your friends and your family that you feel like, mm, don't want to bring them to the party. Don't want to highlight them too much. I'd rather not talk about them. The gospel says essentially that's us. And yet God says, I want to bring you front and center. I want to make you for the praise of my glory. I want to show you off. You know that God wants to show you off? You. With the week you just had with the life you have before you came to faith, with the life you have now if you are not a Christian, he would like to show you off in the gospel. We're not just hidden away and forgotten. We become something for all we have been that God loves to show off. And still, Paul's not done. There's more in verses 13 and 14. All this is sealed and guaranteed to us by his Holy Spirit living in us. Living in us. Moving in. God calls former slaves and debtors his, and then he moves in with us. He becomes a roommate in our life for all the stigma, for all the difficulty of how we were and how we continue to be. I just want to say this right now. If you are not a Christian, Christians continue to be difficult. Okay? We do not magically become the best and the best ever people. 
We continue to need grace. But for all the difficulty of who we were and who we are, God comes, chooses to live with us. I don't know if you have roommates. I don't know if you have family. It is difficult to live with people. Amen? I knew that I would get an amen on that one. It is difficult to live with people, and yet God, who is infinite and eternal and in no way, shape, or form evil or bad, chooses to live, to be present, to seal us as his own, who are finite, limited, and don't even know that we have chains on anymore unless he shows us. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous grace. When we look at all this, it is just I don't even know what to say. It's overflowing. God keeps giving more and more. He keeps moving closer and closer. Paul says that all this is lavished on you for nothing you have done, and yet it is the wisest possible thing that God could ever do. To overwhelm you with his grace is not just good, it is the best. It's right. I want to ask you this morning, do you know God? like that? As a Christian or not? If you're not a Christian, if you rejected a God that's not gracious like this and called that the Christian God? If you are a Christian, do you know a God of lavish, overflowing grace in your life? Do you know that? Not do you say that, but do you feel that? Do you live that? Do you know that in your conflicts? Does that come out when you are in an argument with someone? Does that come out in your fears that you just can't let people down? You can't ever not be what they expect you to be. Does this grace come out in your fears? Does it come out in your, your pride over what you've done, over who you know, or where you go to eat, where you work out. The fact that you don't work out or that you don't eat at certain places. Does, it, does the grace of God show up in the things that you pride yourself on? Does it show up in your plans and your hopes? Is there grace saturated into the fabric of your life? Because that's what God means for it to do. For you to be drenched, absolutely soaked in grace. Do you know this at your work, at your school, here, at church? If you are a Christian, if you've hoped in Christ beforehand, as our passage says, all this is now yours. All this happens in the past tense. It says there is something you are awaiting, that, that final redemption with Christ showing up. But all these things, redemption, forgiveness, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, God lavishing these things over you, it says it is yours now. The money is in the bank. Do you live like you have that kind of wealth in the spiritual bank or do you live a life that is so convinced you are spiritually destitute? You feel like you are spiritually living paycheck to paycheck. When God has said, you can't count the money of spiritual grace that I have in your account. Do we live like we are spiritually wealthy people? I confess I don't. A lot of the times I do not. We can 
enjoy this grace and God teaches us even to enjoy it. The riches of his grace are, if you believe in him, yours. And if you don't believe in him, these riches are offered to you completely for free in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the mystery of it that we're going to spend some time talking about, it, that these things are free and they are free in him. To get to our second point here, the mystery of the riches, one commentator, Frank Thielman, in his commentary on Ephesians, points out that the word mystery, verse 9, describes something that could not possibly be known unless God made it known. It is something that would otherwise be absolutely hidden and unknowable. Grace like this, this rich, this free, this overflowing, is something Paul says we can't discover on our own. Why? Why is it a mystery? It's a mystery because grace, I want you to hear me say this clearly, grace is not something that you go out and find. Grace is someone that comes to find you. This crazy, overflowing grace isn't some magical thing that we go and find hiding in a cave. Again, it is something, someone that comes to find you. It's all found, our verse says, in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in him. If you go back through the verse, everything is in him. It says it over and over. The forgiveness and redemption, the unity of all things working together under his wisdom and power, all that plan worked out to draw us in and show us off, all that happens, not in some sort of vague idea, but in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery that we would not know on our own unless God told it to us, and that's the challenge of grace in and of itself, that grace is not something that you can go out and find on your own. It isn't something that's just sitting there that if you do it on your way and time, you will get it when you want it. Grace pushes back on the idea that you are in control and that you receive this when you want to, when you are good enough, when you've earned it, that you're driving the bus in some way. And that is so hard and mysterious for us, at least here in the West. But if it's ever going to be grace, I need you to hear me say this, if it's ever going to be just grace, something that is a gift that you in no way, shape, or form at any point in time ever deserve, if it's actually going to be grace, then it has to be something that comes and finds you, not something that you go out and find through your own strength. So that even in finding grace, it should in no way depend on you. Grace has to be a gift that is brought to you and set down in front of you, even from the beginning. Otherwise, it is not grace. It becomes, in some way, shape, or form, whether at the beginning or at the end, if it has something to do with you, it becomes a reward for your effort, not just a gift. It becomes an accomplishment, a debt, even if it's you going to find it and then having it. This is the mystery that we would not know on our own, the challenge that we don't like to accept on our own, that grace has to be something, in fact, someone that comes to find you. And Scripture helps us understand the necessity of this because from the beginning, when we walked away from God in the Garden of Eden, our only instinct then and now has been 
that in order to find something as rich and fulfilling as an overflowing grace like this, that we have to take it for ourselves. That's what Adam and Eve were trying to do. They were operating under the conviction that in order to have a full life, they had to take it for themselves. And since then, we have not been able to get that idea out of our souls on our own. Our instinct has always been on our own to work for it and strive for it, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the mystery revealed is that in no way from beginning to end is it something that we ever achieve for ourselves. And the true grace of that mystery is that, yes, we don't know how to find real grace, and that doesn't matter. Because grace comes to find you. You don't have to know how to find him. He knows how to find you. Jesus comes to find you. In him, grace is alive. It's a person who makes it his business to come and find people who don't know how to find him, to be a rescuer, to be a redeemer, so that life with him is a gift always and forever from start to finish. It's with the grace of Jesus Christ that you can say, I don't know how to find you. That's the mystery. But you know how to find me. Would you come and find me? I don't know how to find you, God, in this. I don't know how to find you in this relationship. I don't know how to find you amidst this person that I'm having a conflict with. I don't know how to find you just in terms of faith. I don't know how to find you in terms of my health. I don't know how to find you. Would you come and find me? That's what a personal grace lets you say. And really, that's the cross. The pinnacle of the mystery of God's grace is Jesus coming to find you when you don't know how to find him and you weren't even looking. To pour his life out for you there in that rich grace. To buy you back from the emptiness of idolatry and sin. To forgive your endless debts. To turn you with all your lostness into something that is worth the praise of his glory. That's God's grace. That's the cross. Jesus not just showing you the way, but being the way being the one who would come and find you, doing all this for you, bringing an overflowing grace like this just because he wants to. Because it's the wisest possible thing that he could do. This is the richness and mystery of God's grace, that God the Son himself would come to find you and give his life for yours to give you all this absolutely for free. Not because you were good. Not because you finally started coming to church, finally started reading your Bible, finally started praying, got involved more, started serving more. But just because grace such as this is what he delights to do. Paul challenges us, calls us to behold the mystery of God's grace which is that against every instinct we have, it must be something, it must be someone who comes to find you.
So I invite you as we close to apply this a bit to do two things. To let this mystery stand in your hearts. I want to invite you to add riches to your poverty and to ask grace in Jesus to come and find you. First to add riches. Where do you feel particularly poor right now? Maybe literally, financially. Maybe that is in your health. Maybe it is in your family, with your parents, with your kids, with your siblings. Maybe it's just within yourself, with the way that you feel about who you are. Where do you feel poor right now? And what would it look like for God to apply the riches of a grace like this to that part of your life? What would life feel like if riches like these just dropped on that part where you felt so desperately poor? I'm going to invite you, don't, don't figure out your whole life, that's not going to happen. Just What's that one area, even a small area, where you feel poor right now? To invite God to bring his riches to bear to that place. Not because you are earning it. To set down your earning by his power and by his grace and to just let him dump lavishly, wave after wave after wave of grace into your life. As he's already shown us in Jesus that that is what he is completely committed to doing. Let God pour out the riches of his grace on your life because grace is right for you. Especially where you feel poor, God's grace is right for you when you put your faith in him. Apply the wealth that he offers you because it is yours. It's in the bank account. Don't live on some sort of meager stipend when you have trillions spiritually in the bank. Let it pour out. I invite you, secondly, to, to ask him to find you. If you are poor and you don't have that spiritual wealth, in the bank. You don't have him behind you. You are still doing that. I have to find it on my own. I don't recognize that these are chains anymore kind of life and you are exhausted and you just, you're not there yet. I invite you to say today, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next, Jesus, but would you come and find me? Invite him. You don't know what it takes. You don't know how we're going to get past this thing. Jesus, I don't know how I'm going to get past this thing between you and me, but come and find me. Come and find me. I want to ask you, invite Jesus. Come and find me. If you've known him, invite him to come and find me again in the ways that you feel lonely, in the ways that you feel confused, frustrated, turn to the mystery of a grace that comes to find you in Jesus, where he has already said, this is what I came to do, and just ask him to do what he has come to do, to be who he already is. Ask him to come and find you, because Paul says he absolutely will. Let's pray. We like to leave a little space at CTK for you to reflect in your hearts and prayer about some of the things we've just talked about, maybe thanking God that he has a grace that comes to find you. You don't have to find it on your own. Maybe confessing the ways that, that you want to make grace something that you deserve, that you, you feel you've got to do that, or 
ask him to pour out some of the riches of his grace on your heart. Let's pray for a few moments. God, I thank you that you hear our prayers and that you answer them. Would you come and find us now? In your son's name we pray, amen.